This morning we'll be taking our third look at, and I believe our final look at, the encounter of Jesus on the road to Emmaus and how that plays out, crescendos in our text this morning, and how this second post-resurrection narrative sets up the third and final. You'll remember chapter 24 has been devoted to three accounts, is devoted to three accounts of the resurrection. First, the women going to the empty tomb, meeting the angels, returning, reporting to the eleven, and being dismissed um, as just telling some old tale. Then the passage we're looking at, Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples. And then finally, um, which our text this morning sets up, is Jesus appearing in the midst of all of the assembled apostles and the disciples and ultimately commissioning them. That's the third narrative chunk of chapter 24. So let's read um, Luke 24, 13 to 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them together saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Lord God, um, as we read 
about how your disciples slowly came to faith in the resurrection of your son. We pray that you would open our eyes to see, that you would open to our minds the scriptures, that we might share in that same confidence, that same faith that, that has put the world on its head, that has turned things upside down since it happened. The, the most critical event in the history of the world, the resurrection of your son. Um, so give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Let us share in the joy and the delight of believing this grand miracle. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we've commented in our weeks prior that Luke's resurrection accounts are not what necessarily would be expected. Uh, After all, every Easter Sunday morning, every resurrection Sunday morning, we just celebrate, he's risen, he's risen. It doesn't quite start out that way. It's, It's building to a crescendo. But it starts with a little bit of an anticlimax. The women go to the tomb, and yes, the angels report he's risen. But the women are not believed. The apostles, whom Jesus repeatedly told, get this into your heads. They just don't believe them. Peter runs to the tomb. There's some spark, maybe that Peter wants to believe. Then Jesus shows up incognito to these men on the road. They don't recognize him. Their eyes are blinded. And we get further insight into what they're thinking. They're discouraged. They're confused. They don't understand. And in many respects, that's the state of all of Jesus' disciples and the apostles. They're bewildered. They're discouraged. They're sad. And we we learn what they believed about Jesus. He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And they had hoped he was going to redeem Israel. And ironically, that is exactly what he has done just not in exactly the way that they had expected. And so Jesus gently rebukes them and then begins what must be the most amazing Bible study ever to take place. Over a seven-mile walk, probably about two hours or so, Jesus opens to them the scriptures. That's just, you, you kind of wish you could be there, be a, be a fly on someone's shoulder watching as the living word of God unpacked the written word of God to these men And we, and we studied two weeks ago how this, the Old Testament does indeed predict the coming of the Christ and predict the necessity that he would suffer first and then enter into his glory. So this morning, we are going to see these two disciples come to the conclusion that Jesus is risen, meet with the other disciples who've come to the conclusion that Jesus is risen as we prepare for the final and climactic um, narrative in Luke 24. And this, this part three, the Lord is risen indeed. The Lord is risen indeed. It takes place over two chunks, an extremely revealing meal, followed by a surprisingly common confession. So we're going to look at verses 28 to 32, an extremely revealing meal. And this, this unfolds over five points. First, point A, invitation. Invitation. So we left off last week with Jesus teaching in the scriptures for two hours, just text after text after text, showing them, unpacking, opening up for them, interpreting, literally, or translating is how the Greek word can be um, translated. And now I think our Lord wants to see how they respond to that. The text says that Jesus, as they drew near to Emmaus, acted as if he were to go on. And I think the indication is to see what these men will do. Will they say, well, thanks very much. 
and go on their way? Or will they evidence what they do evidence, a desire to know more? So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it was towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So they strongly urge him. They give him this invitation. They urge Jesus to stay with them. Why? They don't yet know it's Jesus. The sole reason, I believe, is their desire for more teaching. I mean, this is the greatest teaching was ever taken place, the greatest teacher ever taken place. He's, he's explaining, he's, he's, remember what he was teaching them. He was answering their bewilderment. They're confused by what has happened. He insists, verse 26, it's necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And then he's backing that up with a Bible study. So presumably, the, 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 the the dots are being connected in their minds. They're beginning to see this more and more in the scripture, and they want to hear more of it. So they urge him to stay. No, no, you got to stay. Don't stop. They urge him to stay with them. Now, it's evening time. Now, notice again how Luke's connecting the chronology. This is all the first Easter. This is all the first Resurrection Sunday. It started, chapter 24, early in the morning. Now it's approaching evening time. And so they go in, he goes in as their guest. He accepts their invitation. Stay with us for it is toward evening. The day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And something interesting happens. They, they act as the host. They invite him. And yet by the time they're sitting down, who's doing the breaking of bread? Who's distributing the meal? Who's the host? Jesus. It's kind of strange and striking. They're inviting him in, in, in verse 29. And in verse 30, Jesus is functioning as the host. And I, I presume it's something along the lines of they have such awe and respect for this man as a teacher. They've, they've never heard teaching like this from anyone other than Jesus before, with authority and with clarity. That whether Jesus just took the head at the table or they gave it to him, I know not, but they clearly are just fine with it. Which then leads to the second point, distribution. So from invitation... The distribution. Verse 30. He went, when he was at table with them, he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Now this becomes central, because if you look down at verse 35, this is one of the key ways they recognized Jesus. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So they've, this is the Roman style of eating. There's a low table. You're on your side reclining at table eating, and this would be sort of the first course, the breaking of the bread, and Jesus breaks the bread, he takes the bread, first of all, three things, he took the bread, he blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. So we've got to discuss briefly what's, what's so significant about what Jesus is doing. Now, some want to connect this to the Lord's Supper, as though the, uh, Jesus here is reinstituting, reperforming the, uh, the, the communion, doesn't necessarily work. The, the strongest argument for it is simply its close proximity to Jesus' institution. After all, it's chapter 22 where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. But here there's no mention of wine, the other element. Moreover, there's actually a stronger verbal parallel to the feeding of the 5,000. So in the feeding of the 5,000, in Luke um, chapter 9, 16, took 
He took the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. He broke them and gave them to disciples. So he took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. Whereas in the Lord's Supper, very close, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. So the exact perfect parallel is to take, bless, break, give. At the Lord's Supper, he took, gave thanks, broke, and he gave I think this is much more Jesus' pattern and style in table fellowship. So certainly it can have chapter 22 in view insofar as this is the way Jesus would begin a meal. This was characteristic for him. But actually, if there's, you want to pick the strongest parallel, it would be the feeding of the 5,000. Um, so this is significant because what they're getting is first Jesus' teaching like no one other. And now they're seeing Jesus' um, table fellowship. And in Luke's gospel, table fellowship is very important. In fact, turn back to to Luke chapter 9. Big revelations take place in Luke's gospel around meals. In in Luke's gospel, if you can remember way back to when we were in chapter 9, it crescendos there with wondering who Jesus is. In fact, the event right before the feeding of 5,000, verse 9 of 9, Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this? He's he's perplexed about who Jesus is. And Jesus feeds the 5,000, and somewhere in that feeding, at least Peter rounds the corner in concluding who he thinks Jesus is. And so Jesus, immediately after the feeding in Luke, because in 9, 10 through 17 is where the feeding takes place, look at verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, the Christ of God. So as Luke records these miracles, it's this grand miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 that occurs in all four Gospels, that finally, apparently, brings Peter to conclusion of who Jesus is. So a, a, a new understanding of who Jesus is is associated with this feeding. Jesus himself, for the first time, plainly speaks about his death. Verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day raised. So already in Luke 9, this meal, this pattern, is connected with a new understanding. Jesus announcing the new understanding of the Messiah, suffering, Peter understanding, you are the Christ of God. Likewise, in the upper room, the meal takes the sign from Exodus of the Passover lamb, and gives it a new new covenant meaning that we're going to celebrate this very day. And we could look at more examples of table fellowship in Luke. But So this is not uncommon. When you're understanding why is it so significant. They're having an intimate meal with Jesus as they see him take the bread, bless it, distribute it. Some, some lights go off. Verse 31, their eyes were opened and we move from distribution to recognition. Recognition. Their eyes are opened, and Jesus disappears. Now, of course, verse 31, their eyes were opened, parallels. Verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing. So at the beginning of the encounter, something happens to their eyes, and in verse 31, that is undone. And they see who it is. 
and they recognize him, and as soon as they recognize him, he vanishes. It's dramatic. They recognize him in the breaking of the bread. They say as much in verse 35. And and the combination here of Jesus' teaching, Jesus' um, demeanor around the table, the way he blesses the food, the way he distributes it, they recognize him. So they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. And presumably then, Jesus' purpose is done. That's why he leaves. And one of the questions we're left with is, why, why disappear then? Well, I think there's at least two reasons. But one of them is to set up the action that follows. Jesus wants to get his disciples regathered together so that he can make the final appearance here at the end of this chapter with them together. So he needs to get them to assemble. He does this to help bring these men to faith and to set up what's going to happen next. They're going to return to Jerusalem. I think there's another possible reason as well, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. Um, His purpose with these two disciples is complete, which leads us from invitation, distribution, recognition, to finally recollection, recollection. Just like the women at the tomb who were told remembered what Jesus had said, these two disciples, it's interesting, they don't seem that shocked or surprised at Jesus' disappearance. In other words, once they understand who he is, his sudden disappearance doesn't seem to phase them that much. They're instead, they marvel. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? They remembered how he opened to them the scriptures, which is somewhat ironic. They've just had their eyes opened, but their eyes are only open to who Jesus is after Jesus has opened the scriptures to them. So the opening of the eyes follows the opening of the text. Now this is not as the Mormons would talk about the burning in the bosom. This is simply a, a, a phrase for strong and intense emotion. I just want to pause and, and just think about the importance of this. Um, one of the things, if you're new here, if you wonder why do we do what we do here, why does the teaching of the word take such prominence in our gatherings? We gather for about an hour and 15 minutes, and 45 minutes of that is me Because we believe, and we get it from here, that explaining, opening what the Bible means is the primary task in teaching. Um, Jesus is just walking along the road, going from text to text, opening up what it means. And that isn't boring to these men. It is burning emotion inside of them. His exposition provoked intense emotion within them. It also means, again, what I've said earlier, the scripture has a meaning. You can't open something up in its meaning. You can't translate something if the meaning is uncertain. Uh, There's none of this relativistic, well, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? No, the whole point is Jesus is telling them what it means, showing them what it means, opening it up so they can see it, not simply taking his word for it. The word picture is opening it up. It was hidden before, but now they can see it. And his exposition was their other means of recognition. His, rec- his exposition was their other means of recognition. The whole point is, when it clicks, when their eyes open, when they see who he is and he disappears, the logic is, we should have known it was him. Didn't our, didn't our chest burn within us while he taught? Implying that that was a similar experience they had to previous teaching. 
So the two ways they recognize Jesus are in his table fellowship, breaking the bread, and through his teaching. And again, I just want to pause and say this offers a model for us in our goal in reading the Bible and understanding. Turn to Acts 17. Um, This is not simply a prerogative of the Messiah. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is in Thessalonica. Verse 1, now when they had passed through Amphipolis, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And in verse 3, the word translated in the ESV as explaining is the exact same Greek word, diagoigo, which means really to open, to open wide. It's used in Luke 2 about the first child to open the womb. It's used of blind people receiving their sight, things being opened. And so Paul is following the exact same pattern. What does Jesus spend his time and his chips with his disciples doing? He's got to open the scriptures for them to understand. We made this point last week. It's critical that their belief in the resurrection is rested upon understanding God's word. Not first and foremost their experience. Not first and foremost clever reasoning. But seeing it in the text. What does Paul do when he wants to convince Jews that Jesus is the Christ? He spends three Sabbaths in a row opening the Bible from the scriptures, and he's explaining the exact same point that Jesus had. Jesus' point in the road to Emmaus, don't you understand that Christ had to suffer then enter his glory? Verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Um, So that's the model we have. Jesus modeled that in his teaching. We illustrations, jokes, things like that that, that, can, that can enter into sermons, they're useful only insofar as they promote the unpacking, the opening, and the understanding of the text. That, that's the goal, that's the value, and everything else should serve that value and purpose. The goal, my goal for you all when we gather, is that you might understand, see, in the text, not taking my word for it, remember, never take my word for anything, You shouldn't care what I think unless you know why I think it. But seeing it for yourself in the text, that's what Jesus spent his time with. That's what the Apostle Paul modeled. And that's the value of hearing God's word is if you don't see something, if you don't see it there, it's meaning. Jokes, uplifting stories, charismatic speaking is worthless. Understanding the word of God. That is what matters. Um, so, recollection. They look back on Jesus' teaching. And they, they marvel that they didn't see it sooner. And again, we get that connection that their opening of their eyesight to recognize Jesus is predicated and built upon his first opening of the scripture to them. His first opening of the scripture to them. Which leads us then to the second part of our narrative, A surprisingly common confession. So they sit down at the meal. Jesus breaks the bread, distributes it. They see him. Poof, he disappears. They say, 
Why didn't we get it sooner? Didn't our chest burn within us? Our hearts burn within us? While he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And then these men who've just finished their journey get up and go back. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So our second point is surprisingly common confession. A surprisingly common confession. First, they rise immediately and return to Jerusalem. Now, why? Why would they do that? It's a pretty obvious answer. Because they've got exciting good news they want to share. Remember, they left Jerusalem discouraged, dejected, sad, confused, bewildered, perplexed. Now they understand. They got the answer. They've seen it in the scripture. They've seen it firsthand. They got to go back and tell the 11. Boy, wait till they hear what we have to tell them. You can think of them saying. You know, Proverbs 15:30, the light of the eyes rejoices the heart and good news refreshes the bones. Proverbs 25, 25, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. But this is another indicator of how evangelism should naturally flow from joy. These people aren't asking, well, do I have to go tell the disciples? They, can't, they get up and just go. I've got good, exciting news to tell them. And they, they hot foot it back to Jerusalem. I'm guessing in a much shorter time than their journey out. And then something truly amazing happens. They, they think they've got the scoop. They think they've got the good news. They finally find the 11 and the rest of the disciples. And they're met with news that they have. Now, the ESV might be a little confusing about who's speaking here. If you look at um, verse 34, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. It's not as clear in the English who's saying things. The Greek's a bit clearer. I think it's pretty clear that they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying. They found the 11 saying this. It's the 11 and those who are gathered with them who are saying this first um, statement. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So it's kind of dramatic irony. They think they've got the scoop. They've got, you, wait, you guys hear it. We have to, they show up, they meet him and they come in and guys, guess what? And they're shut. The Lord's risen. Well, that's what we were going to say. The Lord has risen indeed. And that simple confession is the foundation of the New Testament proclamation of the cross. The Lord has risen indeed. In fact, um, turn over to 1 Corinthians 15 briefly. 1 Corinthians 15. This declaration that Christ has risen is, is the the rock the New Testament church is built upon. It was the early church's refusal to deny this that would lead people to martyrdom. And this became the central claim of Christianity. And again, notice the central claim of Christianity is a historical claim. I've mentioned this before. Other religions might be able to exist as philosophies, as systems of thought. Christianity, if Christianity is not historically true, it's worthless. It is worthless if the central claim, the resurrection of Jesus, is not true. Um, so look at chapter 15. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, 
by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. This, that phrase, by the way, is where we get, the, I think, the validity of the notion of certain doctrines being more important than others. Orders of first importance suggest second importance, perhaps even third importance. But here are those truths that are of first importance that Paul said are his gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas in the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. That, that's, that's, that's the historical facts. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The Lord is risen indeed. So if you stay there for just one moment longer, Luke, as you remember, includes not only that they declare Christ has risen, but he's appeared to Peter. Now it's odd that Luke includes that because nowhere in Luke is that appearance recorded. But it shows up here as well in verse 5. He appeared to Peter. So if you turn now back to, to Luke 24, I just want to consider that briefly for a moment, the significance of Jesus appearing to Peter, why Luke includes an event that he doesn't relate. And I, and I want to say two things about that. One, this is in part a fulfillment of Jesus' prediction and prayer for Peter. Go back to chapter 22, right? This is at the Last Supper. The disciples start arguing about who's the greatest, who's going to follow Jesus to death, who's not going to turn back. And Jesus says in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. And that you is plural, it's you all, all the disciples. Satan wants all of them. But I have prayed for you, singular, that your faith, Peter, may not fail and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus has prayed for Peter, and he's prayed that Peter would ultimately not collapse on his faith, but that he would be returned, converted, restored, and that being restored, he would strengthen his brothers. I think this post-resurrection appearance to Peter is facilitating that. Peter is going to lead the charge of regrouping the disciples. He's going to lead the charge of the gospel going out in Acts starting in chapter 2 when he preaches on the day of Pentecost. The other thing I think is interesting is this. When could Jesus have had this encounter with Peter? I think this might explain why Jesus disappeared so suddenly at dinner. And we know these travelers have up to the date, up to the minute news about what's occurred. When they relate to Jesus on the road, what occurred, they know about the women not only do they know about the women, they know what those who went to verify what the women said found when they came back. It's possible that before Jesus joined with these two travelers, he met with Peter. But I think more likely is that Jesus left their meal, having secured what needed to be done to get these disciples to return. I think it's more probable that Jesus then went and had his encounter with Peter. That would set up both groups to have this immediate new news, both of them bubbling over in excitement, um, almost simultaneously. Boom, boom. 
These disciples realize who Jesus is. Jesus appears to Peter. I, I, I can't be certain, but I tend to think that's what's going on here. Setting up Jesus' appearance among them in just two verses. The Lord has appeared to Simon. So they receive this surprising news. They think they've got the scoop. They think they've got the news. They, they, they find the disciples very different than when they'd left them dejected. The Lord has risen indeed. And then he appeared to Simon. And then they go ahead and give their report. Um, then they told them what had happened on the road. And how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is bringing his disciples to faith in the resurrection. And why, why not just appear like he does in the next verse? Why not just start there? Because as we've seen, he wants their belief, their conviction in the reality of the resurrection to first and foremost be built upon a foundation of Scripture. Yes, they'll be witnesses. Yes, they've seen things. Yes, they've had experiences. But the primary foundation is the angels. Remember what he said to you. They remembered. Look at what the Scripture says about the necessity of the Christ suffering, then entering into his glory. And only then... Will Jesus appear? And even when he does appear, it's necessary. Look at verse 45. Same word for opened. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. You see, Luke is going to end with the disciples being launched into New Testament ministry. The book of Acts is going to relate that. But this final section of Luke is transitioning from this bumbling Christ-denying, fearful, discouraged band of fishermen and tax collectors to the driven, focused expositors who create the early church in Acts. And how do you get from this band of people, led by Peter, who boasts about what he's going to do and not do, to the disciples you see in Acts? Well, that's what we're seeing, that transition, as Jesus finishes their discipleship, as Jesus finally finishes preparing them. He's going to commission them, starting in verse 44. Look at verse 49. Behold, I'm sending the promise of the Father to you. Look at verse um, 46. He said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. Again, he's pointing back to text. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. That's the commissioning, the great commissioning. That's what we're getting to. And so Jesus has has brought them along. He's opened the scriptures to them. Their eyes open in response. They return. The disciples are all gathered now. And next week, we'll start with verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. But for now, um, the Lord has risen indeed. Notice our Lord's kindness, his gentleness with these slow, dumb, dim-witted disciples gives me hope for people like you and me. The Lord is risen indeed. And that is what we celebrate at this table. So I'm going to pray. We'll transition to a time of communion. Um, knowing that that is the very thing we are declaring as we eat and drink. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, um, we thank you for your patience with us, your patience with these disciples. 
We thank you for your condescension, your gentleness. You are mindful that we are but dust. And Lord, you've been patient with us. You've been patient with me. So many times I've been ignorant, slow of heart to what you have said. And by your spirit and by your word, by your people, you, you bring us along. And Lord, now as we come to this table, symbolizing your death and your resurrection, symbolizing the, the cost that was paid on our behalf, we want to do it in a worthy manner. We do not want to blaspheme this sign. We, we pray that you would um, help us to do it properly in faith, um, in the confidence and the hope that you are risen indeed. In Jesus' name, amen.